is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel. And every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today is the writer Blythe Robertson, author of How to Date Men When You Hate Men. As you can tell from that title, Blythe is best known for her witty, comedic voice and has contributed to publications like The New Yorker, New York Magazine, and The Onion. Her latest book, America the Beautiful, was inspired by a two-month road trip from Wisconsin to the West Coast and back again, a journey that aimed to examine the American obsession with freedom, travel, and the open road via 30 national parks. In this episode, Blythe talks about quitting her cushy job on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert to pursue this adventure, her desire to write a book that didn't conform to the healing journey narrative of most female author travel memoirs, and how humans can reconcile our need to be in nature with the environmental impact of our collective presence. Blythe, welcome to The Trip That Changed Me. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm particularly excited to speak to you about this trip because I did a similar thing in 2021 with my husband and any opportunity I have to talk about it, I will take. So yeah, <laughs> I'm excited nice. to do that with you on, on some of the similarities between the two trips. But I like to jump in normally by asking, where did your love of travel originate? Oh, wow. Well, let's see. So my parents were divorced and my stepdad was kind of like a father figure for all the kids in my neighborhood who just kind of like ran amok, just, I don't know, trying to start clubs and solve mysteries and like punch each other. That was like my neighborhood vibe. So he had this, my stepdad is an electrical engineer and he has this white kidnapper van for lack of a better term. It's like, you know, a van that you see it and you're like, that guy's kidnapping someone. I'm picturing it. He would take all of the uh, kids in the neighborhood and just like pile us into the back. And he would drive us to like go camping, which was very nice for like this pack of kids. So yeah, definitely like going camping with all of my friends uh, in a state park in Wisconsin was a really formative experience for me as a kid because we would just get to like run around and have adventures. And it wasn't really that far from home, but it felt very different because it was like in this area of Wisconsin with these huge cliffs. And I grew up in cornfields where everything was very flat and boring. So that was definitely part of it. And then also my dad would take us on a trip to a different national park every year. So getting to see parts of the country that were a little bit further afield was also like, oh my God, there are so many things out there. I love that. And then when did you move to New York? It's 10 years. It'll be in like two weeks. It'll be my 10 year anniversary. Same here. Well, mine was a couple really? of months ago, but I was like, oh, official New Yorkers now. <laughs> nice. Did you do, did you have like a party or anything? No, it kind of went without much fanfare. And I was like, oh, I didn't even do an Instagram post about it. <laughs> <laughs> but did you always want to be a comedy writer? I didn't. So I grew up in kind of a conservative corner of Northern Illinois, where everyone like loved George W. Bush. And I felt like the only person who didn't. And I just was really like, vocal about politics as a young high schooler. And I worked for Barack Obama the summer before my senior year of high school. I like lived in this place, Wausau, Wisconsin, which is like six hours away from where I grew up. And just volunteered and worked in his office the whole summer. So when I went to college, I was certain that I was going to be president one day. I was like really, really focused on the politics of it all. And I went to Harvard and everyone there was like so much smarter than I was and like so much more serious. And so I was like, oh, my God, like these people can be president. Like, so I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I randomly met some people who worked on a comedy show. So I was like, they seem fun. I'll like join their comedy show and immediately loved it. They like had this studio space and they would have these writers meetings where people would submit sketches they wrote. And then we would read through all of them anonymously and just try to make each other laugh. And I was like, this is the best vibe. I want to be around funny people uh, for the rest of my life. And it seemed like the best way to do that was to try to also be a comedy writer. So that's kind of how it happened. 
I think it's a real skill to write funny. You know, I have a lot of friends who are writers who are really funny people. And then I read their work and that none of that comes across in their tone. Not that, I mean, they're, they're amazing writers and what they do is so cool, but I think it's interesting to make your sense of humor translate onto the page is a real skill, I think. Yeah, it definitely, like, I don't consider myself a naturally funny person at all. I consider myself more of like um, a narc bitch, I guess. So like, I <laughs> definitely had to like go. I like took when I was like, okay, I want to be a comedy writer. How do I do that? I looked into, you know, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. And I was like, okay, well, they took improv classes in Chicago. So I did that. And I really studied like how what is comedy? How can I like be a funny person? And there's definitely it. It's a craft in itself. But I also like my favorite, like I could never write like high literature kind of stuff all those writers are just so it's like magic to me what they do but I love when I read like I read Wolf Hall recently the Hilary Mantel book and was shocked at how funny it is and I feel like that's the kind of thing where I love because it's like life is funny and like all those people you know who are just incredible artists like they're funny people and I love when people can capture both at once and before your trip you were working as a researcher for the late show with Stephen Colbert sounds like a very cool job what did that entail? Yeah, it was the perfect day job. Yeah. So we had mostly I was siloed off into guest research. So like whenever a celebrity would come on the show, I would like, let's say Shailene Woodley came on to promote a movie about the history of dogs or something. I don't know. I would like read every single profile that she had ever done, read all of the interviews she had done to promote the dog movie. I would go watch the dog movie so that if Steven didn't have time to watch it, I could tell him what happens. And I would like watch every clip she had ever done on another late night show to make sure we didn't like talk about the same thing. So mostly I was just doing a lot of watching movies and TV shows and reading interviews with celebrities, all of which like I did for free before anyone paid me to do it. But then also I was involved a little bit on the editorial research side. So the news of the day, like getting all the headlines in one place. And if the writers needed any fact-checking, we would do that. And if they were like, I need an example of a time that Michael Bloomberg said, you know, XYZ about soda, I would like go see if I could find quotes like that. So it was fun because like every day was a different thing. And Steven was so great. And all my coworkers were awesome. And there were snacks and stuff. So I was sad to leave eventually, but had to do it. Well, it sounds like you absolutely loved it. So what was the catalyst for deciding to leave? I, I feel like if I had a cushy job like that, I'd want to hang on to it. I know. Yeah. So when I sold my first book and then was presented with the fact that I would have to write a book, I was like, oh my God, there's no way I can write this book and have a day job. And my editor and my agent were both like, in fact, you can. <laughs> like pretty much everyone who's a writer has a day job um, and you love yours. So I wouldn't leave it. So I did write my whole first book while working a job, but it was hard. Like I did not see a lot of my friends during the period that I wrote my book, but I made it work. And then I kind of a million things happened at once, which is my book came out. So I was doing a lot of press and working. And at the same time, I had just started dating someone who lived in Milwaukee and I live in New York. So I was like FaceTiming him a lot. And I was just not really sleeping. and because I was doing all this press, I wasn't doing any of my own writing. And I was just like, Oh, my God, I have no time to like be an artist. And then I also knew that I wanted to write about travel. And I was like, Well, I'm never going to be able to do this trip if I don't quit my job. And it just seemed like the time was right. Like my book was being pretty well received. So I was just like, Okay, like it's now or never. And my my boss, the head of the research department used to say to us, this is not going to be the first line in your obituary. Like, you know, we're not curing cancer. Like, we're Googling Jai Courtney. So, yeah. So I was just like, you know what? I'm going to quit. And the moment that I did quit, everyone at the show was so proud of me. Like, Stephen told me this job is a velvet coffin and it's good that you're getting out and like focusing on what you really want to do. It's a huge leap, but it sounds like you had an amazing adventure. Were you reading a lot of like travel memoirs or travel fiction around this time? I was probably not around the time. I definitely grew up loving like on the road. And I read Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods, which is his story about hiking the Appalachian Trail. I read that when I was like 18 and just found it so funny and so cool that you could, you know, go on an adventure and make jokes about it. 
And I had read Wild like right when I graduated college, I think, and Eat, Pray, Love, I think I read in high school. So there were a lot of those kinds of narratives that I really, really loved. But at the time that I was like, I should do this, I was mostly still just reading like works of academic feminist literature, I guess. The Great American Road Trip is so deeply mythologized in culture. Did that make it more or less appealing to you? And what kind of you know, new light were you hoping to shed on the road most traveled, as you put it in the intro to your book? <laughs> yeah, so it definitely was like, because it is so prevalent in culture, I was just like, I want to do this. Like, I want to go on a road trip, which had been my main motivator for a long time. I wasn't even like, this could be academically interesting. It was really like, I want to go on a big vacation. And I knew like whenever I met someone who had done a huge road trip like this, it was just so fascinating to me. I wanted to hear all about it, you know, live vicariously through them. I write in the book, I truly developed a whole crush on someone just because he went on a road trip. And I was like, oh my God, what a cool guy. Like, he's living the life I want to live. And so especially like working at a day job that I had to go to an office building five days a week, you know, is like, oh, I can never do a trip like this. So it was even more fun to like plan and think about how cool it would be. And when I was writing my first book, I was like, I would love to write a book about a road trip. And everyone was like, you can't just write a book about a road trip. Like if you could, everyone would do it. No publisher was going to pay you to write a book about having fun. So I was like, okay, what do I have to say about this genre? And I realized that all of the books that were really important to me or all the ones that really loomed large, like on the road, like into the wild, which I had not read the book yet, but I had seen the movie (laughs) multiple times. There are all these like male travel narratives and all the female ones. It seemed like the women were healing from some trauma and, you know, knock on wood, I didn't have any trauma to heal from and I didn't want to have to be traumatized in order to go on the road. So I was like, I think that is what I want to focus on is the gendered aspect of road narratives. And so that was the kernel that got me started. And then it kind of expanded out from there. That is a very interesting observation that, yeah, most women who are doing it or writing about it have something to heal from. Yeah. Do you feel like, because you're a woman doing this on your own, I'm sure people had a few things to say about that. Were friends and family worried about you? (laughs) Yeah. Like, literally, I cannot think of a single person that I told, hey, I'm going to drive around the country, who did not immediately say, you will be murdered when you do this, which was crazy to me because, like, I don't, you know, feel particularly murderable. Like, I pieced this together when I was writing about this. I was like, oh, yeah, like when I moved to the city to go to college and then to live in New York City, everyone said the same thing to me. They were like, oh, my God, like, that's so dangerous. Aren't you so worried you're going to get killed? And it was like, yeah, when I went on the road, people were like, oh, you're going to get killed. And it wasn't even like you're going to get killed by a bear. They were all like, you're going to get killed by a person who's going to like a serial killer is going to find you and kill you. And it got to the point that I was like, okay, there's something bigger going on than just people thinking that I'm going to get killed. And I realized it's like, oh, anywhere that a woman goes in society, outside of the domestic sphere, people are like, oh, you're going to be unsafe. And I think it's really just a way to keep women from doing these things. And it's, I think, one of the reasons that there are so many fewer female travel narratives. And from my experience of going on the road, it was very unfounded. Like, I never felt like someone was going to kill me. I was never like even close to feeling scared or something like that. And I felt so safe, in fact, that I was like, oh, maybe I'm imagining this and it's not really a huge problem. But since I published the book in the past couple months, a ton of women have DM'd me and been like, yeah, the same thing happened to me or like, I'm scared to go on the road because I'm afraid for my safety. So I just want all the women out there to know you pretty much are safe, I think, if you go on the road. And you were doing some like wild camping and free camping as well. So you took it to like quite an extreme. <laughs> yeah, totally. I feel like yeah. I probably would have, I mean, just stayed at motels or something if I was out there <laughs> yeah. on my own. So it feels quite bold. Was that the first time you'd done camping like that? No, I am. Um, so one of my friends from growing up, one of the kids that would get like put in the kidnapper van with me, this woman, Emmy, she and I would go on a lot of road trips together during the hiatuses I would have from work. And she is the one who taught me about free camping, how like if you go to any national forest or any bureau of land management land, you can just sleep for free outside, which is great because I hate paying for things. 
And yeah, it's great. I mean, like you have to pee on the ground. Like there's no toilets and showers and stuff. But other than that, it's like usually in the back country. So it's like very beautiful. And I don't know, something it's like you're in the middle of nowhere. So like unless a serial killer has put an air tag on you, like they're not going to find you. <laughs> like it's like I feel like you're almost more safe. Although my friend Eileen, who is in the book, they own a ghost town in the middle of nowhere in Utah. They were like, the one thing about being in the middle of nowhere is that if something happens out here, it's going to happen to you because you are the only person here. But yeah, I feel like I personally think if I'm going to get murdered, it's going to be at a motel and not (laughs) in the middle of a forest. I mean, it makes a lot, it does just make a lot of sense. The chances that someone would happen to even cross your path out there is exactly. And then the the idea that they would happen to be a murderer, also (laughs) unlikely. Yeah, exactly. So walk us through the route and which parks you were most excited about visiting. Yeah. So when I was like, okay, I want to go on a big trip like this, I knew I wanted to see like beautiful areas of nature. And so I was like, the national parks are probably the quickest way to do that. So I had seen during my time as a person with access to the internet, I had seen people posting like optimized national trip like road maps where they're like, if you drive from this one to this one to this one, this is like the quickest way to see all of the parks. And so I started with one of those maps and then I took off parks where I had already gotten a junior ranger badge, which are these little children's educational badges that you get if you do like a little workbook for preteens. But they really are these workbooks really do teach you about the parks. And then I also just crave external validation. So I really wanted to do this vacation homework. So I flew into Chicago and started there and then drove up to Isle Royale National Park, which is like off of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in Lake Superior. And then I kind of went west through like Minnesota, North Dakota. I did this big loop in like the Utah, Colorado area. And then I went over to the West Coast, down, and then across the southern border. So like went to Saguaro and Big Bend National Park. And Big Bend was probably the one I was most excited about because I'd heard incredible things and it was just gorgeous. But it's like so far away from... It's something like four or five hours away from like the nearest airport that even serves like any sort of airline. So I was like... As a person who's lazy and hates logistics, I kind of was like, oh, there's no way I'll ever get there. So I was really excited that I would actually be able to just drive there on my road trip. And then from there, I went home. I um, went to Marfa on my trip. And I remember oh. being like, can I make it to Big Bend? And then I was like, I don't even think it's like, it's not even close enough to Marfa that you could just pop by like on your way out of town. <laughs> it's yeah, like, pretty far removed. Yeah, totally. Wait, I want to hear all about your experience in Marfa. Oh, well, it was a bit weird because it was Thanksgiving. We were there at a weird time when a lot of stuff was closed down. And so we couldn't really go to a lot of stuff. But we like, you know, went to some restaurants. A lot of the art stuff was closed, unfortunately. We went to the Prada store, obviously, (laughs) on the way in. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, it was cool. It was very quirky and kind of not exactly like how I imagined it, but it definitely has that feel of like, it's a bunch of kind of cool weirdos hanging out there. Yeah, totally. What year did you go there? 2021. Oh, nice. Right, right. Right. Yeah, there was probably a weird year to go as well, because even though huge swaths of the country were not that concerned about COVID, it was still like around and there was, you know, a lot of things kind of closed down or, you know, different hours than they would normally be. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I went there in 2019, I guess is the year that my book takes place. And even a couple of years later, my friends were saying, because like all my friends who live down there all had like 12 jobs because it's a tourist town. So you have to like have multiple sources of income. And they were like, yeah, all the restaurants they worked at had like closed. It was like rough. Yeah. And all everything, because again, it was Thanksgiving. Everything was like booked up as well. So we'd go uh, to a restaurant and they were like, we have no space. And I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> and this other place we'd go to is closed. I was like, damn it. This is not the right time to come to Martha. But I'm still yeah. glad we stopped by. We stayed at this like, in like a tiny house and it was nice to like next door to someone who had like a little bit of land and they had donkeys very random but exactly what I wanted from Martha (laughs) yeah god that rules so when on my trip I didn't know how to drive and neither did my husband (gasps) really I had to learn to drive in preparation for this trip oh my god 
I mean, that was like the biggest thing, but even just packing and logistically, like thinking of how, what you would need, it's huge. So how did Mm -hmm. you go about preparing for the trip? So at the time that I was like, okay, I'm going to do this trip. I normally am a huge Google Doc person. Like whenever I would go on like a one week trip, I would create an eight page Google Doc of like, here's every single thing I could possibly do. And here's where I'm going to pee like every 45 minutes of the day and blah, blah, blah. But this trip, I didn't even know when I started if I was going to do every park in the country or like if I was going to suddenly have to return to New York if I got a job or something. So I flew into Chicago not knowing where I would sleep like the day after I got there, which was kind of fun in its own way to surrender myself to the trip a little bit. But I did have to pack regardless. And I, at the time, was very proud of myself for being a very light packer. I had like a duffel bag and a backpack and that was it. But I also am very working on it, but I don't have incredible fashion sense. So I kind of just packed whatever (laughs) seemed like the comfiest and the most like, I don't care if this shirt gets dirty and wet kind of thing. Because I was like, I'm mostly just going to be hiking. But then I also have like 20 baseball hats. And I was like, okay, what hats can I take on this trip that won't make people hate me? Like all my hats that say New Yorker, I was just like my Elizabeth Warren hat. (laughs) I put that, I put my hats to an Instagram poll and everyone was like, you have to bring your Waffle House hat. And I did. And I was like, okay. And then it was a huge hit. Like it opened so many doors for me. People were like, oh, I love Waffle House. So it worked out. (laughs) Oh my God. I love that. I did feel like we were conspicuous because we had New York license plates Mm. and we had like a Honda Civic and everyone else out West had these like giant rams. And I was like, Oh God, they all know, they all know we're from New York and they probably hate us. (laughs) Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. It was nice having a Wisconsin plate because I mean, it's a little bit more, I don't know, like it could go either way, but it was nice. I wonder if you noticed this, it got to the point where like, once I got far enough out West, whenever I would come back to my car, there would be like a child near my car, like pointing and being like, Wisconsin. And like excited to see a car from so far away. And I was like, oh yeah, I used to be that kid. Or I saw a car that said Hawaii. I would be like, how did they get here? (laughs) It was interesting because people would obviously hear our accents because we're British. Yeah, they would just be like, "Oh, what, what are you doing? Like, oh, what are you doing here?" Especially because it was 2021 and people weren't really traveling that much. So oh, yeah, like walk them through that we were actually living in New York, and then we came out, you know, this way. I and mean, I had some interesting conversations. Not to get too political, but I think because we were foreign, mm-hmm. everyone kind of assumed that we had no skin in the game. So they were like happy to jump into these conversations about politics, and it was just oh, wow. interesting to sort of sit back and be like, "Okay, what? How do?" Like, what are people's mindsets like in different parts of the country? I think that's one of the things that was interesting because having been here for 10 years, I feel like I know America fairly well. Mm-hmm. But there's something about, and I've like traveled all over, there's something about driving specifically and seeing like the slow pace of it and seeing people from all different walks of life. You interact with it in a different way. And I feel like I had a different understanding of the country by the time I got home. I know oh, yeah. you're obviously from America but do you like did you have a similar experience in terms of the way you think about the country yeah I don't think this ended up making it into the book in any way but are you familiar with Tony Judd I don't know how to pronounce I've never said his name out loud it's J-U-D-T is his last name he's like a European historian we had to read his book like post-war in college it's like this doorstop of a book about Europe after World War II, which is, anyways, all to say he has this quote about trains and he's like, yeah, I never really like had a huge grasp on Europe until I like took trains all around Europe because you really see how far away things are and it gives you this sense of like distance and and that's exactly how I felt about cars is like, it just is like, it's a huge country, which you really realize when you're, you know, driving around it. You can have so many days in a row of driving all day and like still not be across the country. And yeah, I mean, it's like I'm so interested that people talk to you about politics because I feel like I have the exact opposite experience where people there's that American like gregariousness, like Mm -hmm. everyone was super outgoing to me and like, how are you doing? And like so polite and like enthusiastic, but also 
in that politeness, like very avoidant of trying, you know, like no one was really trying to like get into it with me, which is like a blessing and a curse. Like I did this trip in 2019. So like Trump was president and just like the worst things about America were like happening every day in the news. So I was happy not to have to like fight with people at every moment. But it's also like, you know, my job at Colbert was like kind of founded on the idea that like we should be talking about this in every moment. And, you know, my job was to know about all these things at every moment of every day. And it felt like I was paying attention to the news and, you know, getting into arguments with people. So what were some of the parts that surprised you the most? Ooh, okay, let's see. I went so hard on not planning this trip in advance that there were multiple parks that I showed up at having no idea what they were other than the fact that they were on my list of places. And almost uniformly, all those parks were great. Like I didn't really know anything about Isle Royal, the first park before I showed up. And it was incredible. It's I don't like, think I've heard of it before. Yeah. So it's like this park that's basically an island in Lake Superior. Mm. And it is like the number of people that visited in 2018 is like 18,479, which is like so few people. I think that's like literally less than the amount of people that visit the Met Museum in one day. But so it's like the lowest rate of any park in the continental U.S., but it has the highest return rate. So basically, like if you've gone, you're going to go back. And it's just this incredible like rocky shoreline, all these pines. There's like thousands of moose. There are some wolves and they're like reintroducing more wolves because there are too many moose, in fact. But it's just so beautiful. And you can like get a seaplane can drop you off at one end of the main island and then you spend a week hiking to the other end and then you can like take a ferry back. And it's just like so gorgeous and all these, everyone on the ferry was so nice to me and it's like this little, I don't know, this corner of America that it's not overrun, but the people who know about it really love it. Um, So that park I loved. I really loved North Cascades National Park, which was also pretty sparsely visited when I was there in 2019. And like my campsite was like down a trail that you had to hike into and it's just like very very dramatic mountains like almost like like a kid's drawing of a mountain and like covered in snow and like these very like teal lakes that are filled with like glacial silt but on my book tour just like last month I was talking to someone who lives in Portland and she was like oh yeah it's like overrun now so it's already one of those areas that kind of like because of COVID I think more people are going there And then I also really, I had never heard of and really loved Guadalupe Mountains National Park, which is also in West Texas, like right over the border from New Mexico. And it's just like the highest elevation in Texas, these like crazy mountains that are rising out of the desert. And uh, there's like, I don't know, just like a lot of cool desert animals there. And the thing about Texas is like, I think it's more than any other state. A lot of the land is privately owned. It's like 98% of Texas is like privately owned. So it's just nice to have some public land where you can go and recreate. It is just such a beautiful country. It really is. It really is. And I feel like awe is something that we don't really get a lot of in modern life. Mm -hmm. And nature obviously never fails to provide it. So how did experiencing all of that beauty on a daily basis start to impact you? Oh, wow. Oh, my God. That's such a good question. You know, yeah, it's like so rarely, I think, in life do you say like, I want to do this big thing. I'm going to make a really big decision because I want my life to change. And then you do it and it works out. But that's like I quit my job because I loved my work, but I felt like I was put on this planet to do more than Google celebrities. And I felt like I wanted to bet on myself when it came to my art, which it feels crazy to call comedy writing art. But like, you know, it's like I am trying to make a life based around art. And I knew that I wanted nature to be a bigger part of that. And I knew that it was so important to me when I was a kid. And I felt like I had so little access to it in New York because I don't have a car. It's hard for me to like get out of the city. Yeah, so it just felt incredible to quit this job that I loved and to drive around the country and just be truly like overwhelmed by the beauty of everything. And it's like, I mean, it's corny, but I think about in Wild, Cheryl Strayed's mom is like, you should put yourself in the way of beauty. I think about that line all the time. (laughs) 
I was like, I did it. Like I really did it. And it, it was incredible. And I think like as I age, I'm 32 now, I feel like more and more of like what I want to do is just put myself in beautiful places and like eat food that's good and laugh. And that's like the meaning of life, I think. It's just really like grabbing pleasure where you can. And I think like you don't always need to be in like Big Bend to do it or like on an island with a bunch of moose in Lake Superior. I feel like I can access those kind of feelings now, even just, you know, in New York City parks and stuff. But yeah, it made me, it reminded me like, God, this is so corny, but it really did remind me like why I'm alive and like what is good about being a human being. Yeah, yeah I agree. When uh, my husband and I were in Boulder for a couple of weeks and really, really loved it there. Yeah. And we used to go like finish because we'd be on East Coast time. So we'd finish like a couple of hours early in the afternoon and take our dog up by hiking by the Red Rocks or like oh. the Flat Iron. And when we got home, we'd get into bed and my husband was like, I don't know what it is. I just had this feeling. It's like contentment or something. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> it is that, it is that. It is yeah. And I think you don't, I don't know. I don't spend, even though I live by Prospect Park, I don't spend enough time in nature in mm-hmm. New York and like really absorbing it in that way. Well, maybe it's just that the nature isn't big enough here. I used to get mm-hmm. the feeling a little bit when I lived in um, either Greenpoint and Brooklyn Heights because you're by yeah. the water. I used yeah. to try and go and watch the sunset most days and that mm. kind of gives me that feeling. But yeah. yeah, there is just something that we need to try and carve out that time to appreciate the beauty of nature because it is there all the time. Just kind of forget about it when you're on your grind. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And I like, I've read like 12,000 books and research to write this book, but one of them was like, there's so much public land that is just owned by states or cities. And like, I was like, oh yeah, that's so true. And it's like, you know, it's kind of like a pain in the ass for me to get out of Greenpoint to get to any state park in New York, but it's so easy for me to get to, you know, McCarran Park or McGolerick Park, or even like, this is again a corny thing, but I read the overstory and I was just like, oh my God, trees are so cool, which is true. But also I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so I got, I asked my dad for Christmas to get me a book about identifying trees. And so then I just like started noticing the trees that are, you know, not natural. They're like planted there, but there's trees all around us. And just even noticing that like, oh, this is like a sweet gum tree or this is like a red oak or whatever makes me feel more in touch with like being alive than I did when I was just walking around like, (laughs) yeah. Did you ever feel sad that you didn't have a companion to share those moments of awe with or did it feel special being alone? I mean, I have certainly traveled alone and felt so lonely. Like, I think there's this stretch of interstate between Denver and Utah that is so gorgeous that I drove for the first time in 2016 on my first ever solo road trip. And it was just not, I was not expecting it to be so beautiful. And it was like blowing my mind. And every single time I turned or like, you know, the road curved around an obstacle, I would be presented with this beautiful vista. And I was just like, I cannot appreciate this enough as one person like this needs to be shared and I was just like I had a huge crush on someone at the time and I was like I wish Colin was here to see this (laughs) and so I felt the beauty made me feel more lonely actually than I think I would have felt if I was just driving a normal road in 2019 I didn't have I guess a huge crush on Colin anymore so I felt like more okay being alone but I did Really appreciate the like two days of my trip when a friend came with me. I picked up a friend in Denver, actually, and we drove that stretch together to Utah. And that was nice because I was like, isn't this road fucking crazy? And she was like, it is, in fact, fucking crazy. Um, (laughs) But mostly I was just like very bored of driving. I wish that I had anyone to take over the wheel for me because I had shipped myself. And then in retrospect, I can't believe I was so stupid that I did this. But I literally mailed 30 books to myself at my friend's house in Denver because I was like, I can only fit five in my luggage, but I know I'm going to be reading so much this summer. And then it quickly became apparent to me that I wasn't going to be reading at all because I was driving the whole time. And I was just like, if someone else was driving, I could read these books. I 
was just alone and I didn't know most of the people. So I was just like flirting with every single park ranger (laughs) I saw. And then I was like, oh, I should really leave these people alone. These are like public servants. They don't want to be flirting with me. So, um, (laughs) but it was mostly okay, but it would have been fun to do it with someone else. I know you visited a ghost town in Utah. Tell me about that experience. Yeah. So my friend Eileen owns this ghost town. Basically, it had, so they're from Milwaukee and they had been living in Chicago working as like a floriculturist, which they liked. They were like, it was a great job. It was nice to be outside. I liked the people I worked with, but it was dependent on, you know, having a body that could pick up bags of soil and stuff. So they were like, not sure what they wanted to do long term. And then they were on vacation. They were flying out to Utah to see this like petroglyph panel in Canyonlands. And they told me that they were on the plane. And then as the plane started to land, their seatmate was like, hey, if you're driving to Canyonlands, you should stop this ghost town, Cisco. And Eileen was like, okay. And they only remembered the name of the town because of the thong song that guy, Cisco. (laughs) So they're like, oh, I guess like I'm literally driving past it. So they pulled off the road. And Cisco is like this... It's not like an old Western, like, Westworldy ghost town with, like, saloon doors and stuff. It's really just, like, really dilapidated buildings and a ton of trash everywhere. And, like, the last person moved out in, like, the 90s. But Eileen was like, this is crazy. Like, there's a building that you could fix up if you just put in some work into it. So they, I guess, went to the county office and figured out who owned the land. And it was some guy that lived like an hour away in the nearest town. So Eileen called that guy and was like, can I buy this land? And he was like, it's a piece of shit. So like, yeah, for a couple thousand dollars, you can. And so Eileen was like, if I sublet my apartment in Chicago for just the winter and buy this land, I will actually be saving money. So they did it. And they had never like built a house before or anything, but they were like, how hard could it be? And they started to rebuild this ghost town. And then once people found out what Eileen was doing, some of the other landowners were either like, oh, you can have this land, or they were like, you can, you know, walk across my land or take any trash that you find on it. So for a couple of years, Eileen just rebuilt a ghost town in the middle of nowhere, no running water. They had to dig out their own pit toilets and stuff. And yeah, it became this like thing, like people, tourists would come by and like take photos and post about it on YouTube. But eventually they had to stop because they were making their money through Airbnb at some of the buildings that they made. And then the county was like, you can't do this because you don't have running water. And also like the ground is toxic. So they had to stop. That's a fascinating story. I know. Yeah. And it's like every layer even. It's just, I mean, Eileen is like the bravest and coolest person I've ever met in my life. Is Eileen still there? No, because Eileen could not make enough money to survive because they, you know, even though they live in a ghost town, they still have to like eat. So they were working like as a landscaper and like there was like a lumber mill, but like the nearest town is literally an hour away. So they were like burning so much gas that working these jobs was not paying enough to make it worth it. And also like, you know, it's Utah. It's the desert of Utah. And even though they never had any running water there, just like there's like a huge drought going on. And like, and Eileen told me like the Southwest is burning up and blowing away. So I think they're going to hopefully maybe try to move somewhere that is a little less climate apocalypse and maybe like do the same kind of thing over again. So you wound up writing a book about the trip, America, the beautiful question mark. Why the question mark? <laughs> I was like, well, I really wanted to call the book because I love Walt Whitman. I really wanted to call it Leaves of Gas, Grass or Ass. No one rides for free, which is like those bumper stickers you see. But yeah, my editor was like, you cannot use ass in the title of a book. So we kind of settled on calling it America the Beautiful. But I did not want people to think that I just loved America (laughs) uncomplicatedly. (laughs) Yeah, so I put the question mark. I like that you love to like that, though, and examine the complexities. And one of the topics that you reckoned with was over tourism and, you know, climate change and how that's changing everything. And it's interesting because obviously you took the trip in 2019. In 2020, the pandemic hit. And I think the national parks, it was like record levels of visitors mm-hmm. to those parks. Have you given much thought to like how we can reconcile our need to be in nature with the environment, environmental impact of our collective presence there? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that I think about 
constantly. And I wish I knew exactly how to solve it. But, you know, there are so many parts of the problem, you know, one of which is like, we have, I think, a diseased view of like what constitutes nature in the country, which is one of the reasons I'm trying to like, pay attention to the nature in New York City, even if I would never like forage any food and eat it here. There's still nature here. And I think that this is based on the ideas of this guy, William Cronin, who is a, I think, retired now, but he was a professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he writes a lot about the environment. And he's like, people see places as either protected or not protected and like virgin or not virgin. And the second it's not virgin anymore, it's not worthy of protection. And that's actually people who, you know, want development, they exploit that. They're like, if we build one road, people will see this whole area as like not worth protecting anymore. So I think that part of the reason that we have these parks that are so over visited is that we're like, oh, well, these are like the beautiful places. And like, these are the places I have to see. And I think the parks are kind of fetishized. And I think, you know, hopefully we can see more nature as worthy as uh, visiting and as like beautiful and like kind of spread out the amount of people going to things. And I think that'll help. But it's also like when I was in Zion in 2019, it was already extremely over visited because of Instagram. And the rangers were like, oh, we're gonna probably like start instituting a, like a reservation system where you have to like get a reservation to even enter the park. And at the time, I told that to other people I met, and they were like, that'll never happen. And that has started to happen since COVID. So in a way, it's nice, because it means like the worst things that were happening were like all of these plants and stuff were getting trampled and like the petroglyphs were getting defaced like that's less likely to happen but it's also like okay well the people that can get those reservations are the ones who know about it and the ones who like have the ability to be like sitting at their computer on whatever day at whatever time to get it and those are probably the people who are a little bit like better off so it's hard because it's like you don't want to gatekeep nature from you know the people like who maybe need it more and don't have as much access to it. So yeah, I don't know. But it's, I think hopefully like even talking about it is good. And like, yeah, but I I, I wish I had an answer. You touched on Instagram and I do think that social media has made over-tourism so much worse. But I have noticed some travel influencers no longer using geotags. Yeah. And then people are like, where is this? Where is this? In the comments. And they just ignore. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. they tag the state, but not the specific park or area. So yeah. people are thinking about it and being more responsible. But it's hard because once you... I'm, I fall for it as well. I see the, the post and I'm like, well, I want to go to this beautiful place. Where is it? Yes, <laughs> yes totally. Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's so hard. I mean, I have started... People have asked me like, oh, where's XYZ thing? And Eileen actually shared this with me. Where instead of being like, okay, I'm going to go to like this thing that I saw online, they just buy this, this thing, the Gazetteer, which is this giant like red, like gas station map thing. It's like a hundred pages of maps. I almost want to go pull mine out and show you, but it's just like very, very, very detailed maps. And they have one of every state. And so Eileen's like, yeah, I'll just like open it to the map of wherever I am and then like look to see if there's like the name of anything that looks cool like a hot spring or like a canyon and then Eileen's like then I'll see if I can like get there like I'll drive as close as I can and then hike or whatever and that is so much like I mean obviously again this is like you have to have the time to be like I'm gonna see if I can get to this hot spring but it's so much more fulfilling I think than being like I'm gonna do the same hike that I saw everyone else do on Instagram because it's like the thing to do. I agree. Yeah. So I think that we go on these trips to satisfy some kind of hunger for adventure or the outdoors. But I feel like that it's never really satiated. Like when I went on my trip, we were gone for like four and a half months, I think. We didn't visit as many parks as you though. But when we got back, I was like, okay, I guess I can settle down. I was also pregnant. So I was like, okay, I need to like get ready for this child. (laughs) But I feel like it, it didn't stop me from feeling the itch. You know, yeah. and I think about it all the time. I still want to go back out there. In fact, it's probably made my wanderlust worse. <laughs> yes. Is that yeah. something you can relate to? Or do you feel like you ticked the box? Oh, no. I mean, like, so yeah, I think one of the reasons I quit my job and wanted to go on this trip is because I wanted to feel more integrated as a person. And, you know, while you're out there, you're like, this is great. I mean, although then like 
three weeks in, I was like, I miss working, like I miss feeling productive. So I was really getting flooded with nature and, you know, the sublime and awe and stuff like that. But it was like, oh, I don't feel like I'm in my life. So then I started to worry like, oh my God. And because I was seeing so many people doing the exact same trip I was doing, especially when I was like in Utah, all those super visited parks. I was like, oh my God, I am not free. I haven't made a change really in any way. I'm just doing the vacation that the society wants me to do, man, like that kind of thing. And I was reading this like very boring. I would not recommend reading it, but I was reading Simone de Beauvoir's travelogue, America Day by Day, which is like her diary of she did this big trip that was like three or four months around America. And she talks about this news story at the time where this like bus driver in the Northeast or something just got fed up, I guess, with driving his bus. And he like snapped and was like, everyone get off the bus and then drove the bus to Florida and like hung out in Florida. And it was like this huge story. And everyone was like, this guy slaps or whatever they would say in like the 40s. Um, (laughs) But she was like, It seems to me so American that this guy is being celebrated as like the epitome of freedom, but he didn't really do anything that changes his life. He's going to go back to his life. He didn't do anything that endangers or threatens like the power structure. It's just like this momentary thing where he got to like feel free. And I really felt like that was the same thing that I was doing in a way, which is, you know, yet another reason that I am trying to figure out the names of trees and stuff because it feels like that I am still searching for a way to incorporate nature and awe and stuff into my, if not daily life, at least like a little bit more often than every couple of years, I'll quit my job and go on the road for a couple months kind of thing. Yeah. And it's hard. I, mean, I think a lot of people are, even people that don't, you know, live in a huge city like New York, I think are feeling the same thing. And it's just probably not something that anyone ever completely solves. So reflecting back on your trip, how did it change you or shape the direction of your life afterwards? Ooh, yeah, I really think it was like, it was the start of a whole new chapter for me. It is the start of my time as like an independent writer. And like, I do feel like it's made me more, I mean, it it really, this is not something that we've really discussed yet, but it really, really, really just like being out there in, especially the desert in July, it made me be like, oh my God, climate change is like, already so bad and like you and i just experienced like a crazy climate event in new york city where the air was poisoned because of the wildfire smoke so i think like it really lit a fire under me when it came to that so all those things kind of like trying to be in nature more betting on myself and my art like thinking of climate change as like a thing that is happening now and not a thing that might happen in 10 years if we don't you know take action all those things were true and then also When I was like, I'm going to do this book about going on a road trip, I thought of freedom in America as this very, like, individual thing. Like, Jack Kerouac goes out on the road. Like, Alexander Supertramp, like, goes out on the road. Maybe even Cheryl Strayed goes on a hike. And immediately I was like, all these things are only possible because I have the help of my family and my friends along the way. And I miss my family and my friends. And the times I'm happiest on the road are when I'm you know, visiting them or meeting new friends and all the problems I saw and all the most exciting things I saw were all like either because a group of people had come together to do it or like could be solved only by the collective together. So it definitely made me think like the more exciting things about nature in America are collective things. And then obviously a year later, like COVID happened, which was really like put into perspective how diseased the American like focus on the individual is. So I think that's definitely been at the forefront of my thoughts in the past year since doing the trip. Well, Bly, thank you so much. It's been really fun speaking with you. Tell people where they can find you on the internet. So you can find me at BlytheRoberson.com or I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Blythe Like Happy, which is the worst handle of all time. But Blythe is, in fact, a word that means happy in English. So that's why. (laughs) I love it. Before you go, I'd love to do a quick fire round. Okay, cool. Okay. What's the one experience every person should have in their lifetime? Oh, my God. Um go swimming at a swimming hole. What's the one thing you never, ever travel without? 
Um, you know what? A tire gauge. <laughs> really? <laughs> you get a flat tire. Yeah. You know, I tried it and it was horrible. So now I make sure I have one. Yeah. I don't know anything about cars. So we're lucky we didn't have any car trouble on our trip. <laughs> um, if you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? I would go to Alaska and I would hike around because it's so expensive to get there otherwise. Which is the most underrated national park in your opinion and which is the most overrated? Oh, wow. Underrated, I'm going to say Big Bend because it was so, so, so beautiful. And overrated, I'm going to say Yosemite, even though it's obviously like an incredibly beautiful park. It is so, so, so crowded. Yeah, I know what you mean. What's your top tip to prepare for driving across the country? Oh, wow. I don't listen to podcasts or audiobooks, and that has been my downfall. I would say just download some audiobooks. <laughs> oh, well, that, this means my next question is going to be, uh, no, it's not going to work. A recommendation for a podcast audiobook or music <laughs> album for a long drive. Well, music, I can say, because all I did was listen to music. You should listen to Hedgera by Joni Mitchell. It's not on Spotify anymore, which is horrible because I only have Spotify. But if you have any other music streaming service, it'll be there. Which is your favorite U.S. state and why? Oh, wow. Oh, my God. They're all so good in their own way, except Delaware, <laughs> which is small and boring. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Delaware. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Delaware. <laughs> Where is next on your bucket list? Oh, wow. I'm going to Mexico City next weekend. So that's like literally next, which I'm excited. I've never been excited to go to the Frida Kahlo house and all the food. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, I'm so stoked. Well, thank you so much. It's been really fun. Thank you. This was so great. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line and please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.